I've made some really stupid statements in my life. How about you? <laughs> one of them was around, one of the many was around in 1983 when I said to my, uh, to Julie's father, my father-in-law, I said, I have no interest in walking, watching black and white films because all the really good ones are in color. Now, in my defense, uh, I grew up on black and white TV. I uh, never had a, a color TV my whole life growing up. And when I was there, you know, when the colorization of films came out, and I was enchanted by the colorization of films. And therefore, all black and white films were bad. Well, Julie's dad, like Priscilla and Aquila of long ago, he pulled me aside and showed me the way more adequately. <laughs> he asked me in rapid fire, have I ever seen Bells of St. Mary? Have you ever seen Sergeant York? Have you ever seen 12 Angry Men? I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> I had seen apparently none of the great classic black and white films. And he, of course, introduced me to them all. And they're now among my most favorite films in my now enlightened state. One of them, uh, 12 Angry Men, was about uh, starring Henry Fonda, and the whole thing takes place in a jury room where a man is, everyone assumes he's guilty. All the circumstantial evidence is against the man. They take the first, you know, the jury ballot, the first ballot inside the jury room, and it was, it was only one holdout, Henry Fonda, who said not guilty. And the whole movie is his gradually convincing them that, in fact, it was circumstantial, and this young man, who actually was innocent, was innocent. And he kept asking them the question, is it beyond a reasonable doubt? And the whole movie turns on that. Well, I thought about that movie when I reread the text in Acts 19 about the 12 men, not in a jury room, but in a little house church in Ephesus. And they were asked that penetrating question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That is a penetrating question. In fact, it's a question that, let's just say it, is probably rarely asked or certainly not asked enough in the life of the church. In my own experience, uh, this question was posed to me in 1977. I was in college at the time, and there was a renewal movement sweeping the nation that actually arguably was, at least in part, uh, traces back to this little town called Wilmore. By the way, I can't believe I'm an Asbury alumni. <laughs> um, and it spread across the country, and, uh, and in some ways, one of the driving questions of that renewal movement was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I had had a very powerful, and I don't believe in any way I doubt the fact, I had a profound conversion to Christ in the year 1975. But no one asked me when I became a Christian, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Like the Ephesian believers, I really hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit. Now, I had, to be fair, a proper Trinitarian theology. I had, you might say, upper story theology. Uh, you know, Holy Spirit. But in terms of the Holy Spirit's empowerment of my life and changing the orientation of my heart, I never heard of anything like that. It was actually on September 25th, 1977, that that question was asked me. 
I only remember that date because my birthday was the day before. I turned 18. My 18th birthday, I also became president of my class college, my college class president. I guess I was a history of being a president of things. <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, I had all that was on my mind, you know. I was thinking about that, my birthday. I had nothing, this was not in my mind when someone asked me the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that question became the crack, or entered the crack of my heart, and it changed my life in so many, many ways. Our text this morning is not without difficulties. Uh, one of the most intriguing questions about the Acts 19 passage, in some ways the earlier one, is whether or not these 12 men are, are they followers of John who have not yet even come into the Christian faith at all, or are they followers of Jesus that need to just kind of go further into their, their experience and their, their work? That we'll come back to that. But the larger question, uh, largest context of this, this is Paul's third missionary journey. And if you study the journeys, I love how all three are so distinctive differently in the way they unfold. And this third journey is remarkable in so many ways. And it opens up one, two, with the two texts read today of Apollos and these 12 believers. All, both of these people who are in this interesting in-between state. We first meet Apollos in, in uh, Corinth and now Ephesus. He's a Jew from Alexandria, and he is in this world. And look at the five accolades he is given in the text. He is eloquent, verse 24. He is powerful, verse 24, in the scriptures. Verse 25, he was instructed or catechized in the way of the Lord. Uh, we're told he was fervent in spirit, uh, verse, meaning fervent in his spirit, not the Holy Spirit, verse 25. He's earnest and bold in his preaching, verse 26. And yet, despite all of these accolades, the question bubbles up, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Really interesting. You, many of you are very gifted. You are eloquent. You're going to get a real degree from Asbury Seminary. <laughs> an actual one. But did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You see, this whole, no one can doubt the giftedness of Apollos. But the question is, is he properly empowered for the journey? Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained the way more adequately to him. There are intentional parallels in these two accounts in Apollos and the twelve disciples. And I think in some ways, uh, you might say in our traditional way of looking at Asbury, the question is, do you believe the whole Bible for the whole world? Is that's really the question that's actually before them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. This is, to me, one of the most defining questions which marks out our movement. No one would doubt that the whole of the evangelical movement, indeed Christians on the world, would acknowledge that central to our Christian identity is acknowledging the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Absolutely. But certainly one of those Wesleyan doctrines, if not the crown of them all, is that the insistence that biblical salvation is in fact Trinitarian. It involves all three persons of the Trinity. The Father calls us and woos us forward. The Son redeems us and justifies us. And the Spirit empowers us and purifies us. So we come to Acts 19. We are told first they're disciples. In verse 1. Now, 
It doesn't say uh, by that whether they're disciples of John or disciples of Jesus. It just says disciples. Now, if you look at this carefully, you know there's 32 times in the Luke-Acts sequence that he refers to use the word disciples. Uh, if you're interested, 11 times in Luke and 21 times in Acts. In every case, the word disciples refers to Christian disciples. We've said three times where he qualifies it all three times by saying the disciples of John or John's disciples. Now, we don't really have any uh, external evidence that they were like these random groups of disciples of John all around the ancient world, but nor is it hardly believable that someone could be a follower of Christ and have never heard and received water baptism. There's a lot of challenges there, but you know, one thing the mission field taught me is there's an abounded set and a centered set. Now, if you ask the question, you know, are these people Christians or are they followers of John, as a bounded set question, you're basically asking, okay, Christian means there is something that defines the word Christian and there's a clear boundary here and you're either in it or you're out of it. And we have our idea, like, what is it that, what is it that crosses across the line? One of my favorite stories that Julie tells is that she was with some international ladies at one point and after many, many years of work, one of the ladies uh, was ready to receive Christ. So they asked her if she wanted to pray and receive Christ. She said she did. And so she bowed her head and she prayed this. She said, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is sorrow, let me bring hope. Let me not so much, uh, I don't know how it goes, but you know, you know, you know, you know <laughs> whatever. She prays to her St. Francis, amen. And evangelicals look at each other like, does that count? Because, see, we have our ideas about, you know, you have to say this and this and this, and then you're in. A centered set is a very different approach to things. It says, you know, they're on a journey toward Jesus, and God only knows where that line is. In the mission field, you live in this much more murky world, and people are moving toward Jesus. In that case, it really doesn't matter so much where they are, Apollos versus the Twelve. We, all we know is they are moving toward Jesus, and there are deficiencies in their faith in some way. Now, their deficiencies may not be your deficiencies, but we all have deficiencies, all right? So part of it is, how, does it, how do we come into full-orb faith? I love the fact there's 12 of them, because this reinforces that the disciple, the apostolic band, keeps getting replicated, right? This is, again, that whole theme of it's not dying out with the apostles, it's being replicated. They received John's baptism, and... As I said, uh, they clearly need to be taken aside by the case of Apollos, or they need to be asked these hard questions. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed in the case of the Ephesian believers? But they all have the common point of some deficiency in their Christian experience. Now, all of us have deficiencies. Maybe it's in your prayer life. Maybe it's in your understanding of the uniqueness of Christ. Maybe it's in your understanding of the theology of the body or human sexuality or Christian revelation or ecclesiology. But we should never dismiss this account because their deficiency is not our deficiency. We have to recognize the larger point that we are all seeking to move closer to Jesus and what he would call us to be and to have. Well, then Paul does something, and in the sequences, remarkable, we've seen this over and over again in this series, they do two things, not one thing. First, they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
They are baptized in water. It doesn't matter whether you sprinkling, pouring, I don't care. They are baptized in water, okay? And then they lays their hands on them and they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. These are two separate things that happen. They spoke in tongues, they prophesied, and they were told there are 12 men there. Now we saw this earlier, remember when we saw this in the Sumerian revival, that it was a huge out, uh, revival broke out in Samaria. Uh, they, Philip was a part of that. They, they all, they, people were getting baptized and saved and delivered, and they eventually call up Peter and John. There's a revival down here. They come down and they lay hands on them later that they might receive the Holy Spirit. We saw this with even Paul himself. Paul had presumably been converted on the road to Damascus, and later, three days later, at least, Ananias comes and lays hands on him to receive the Holy Spirit. So early on, we see the church working with two, what we would call later liturgical patterns, water, water baptism, marking the entrance to faith in that theological space that we later would call justification, and laying out of hands, marks the entrance of our faith into this space we call sanctification, and which, of course, gives us empowerment for global witness, purifying holiness for sanctified living, and discerning wisdom in our lives for life's journey. Now, from a Wesleyan, I think, Christian point of view, power, holiness, and wisdom are just as important from a big-picture salvation view as forgiveness, peace, and reconciliation since both are part of the great theme of salvation in Scripture. Now, the Methodists always distinguishing water and spirit baptism until the 19th century when we began down this treacherous road that we are now at today. And part of your ministry as the church, as future leaders of the church, and one of the controlling themes of ministry should be the recovery, the recovery of biblical apostolic Christianity. Amen? That's part of what you should be about. Well, we're going to pause this series because uh, we're now at the end of the year. We could have had 25 parts, but I didn't want to replicate my Mark series, which I went on so many years that eventually students would say to me, oh yeah, I arrived, you know, at Mark 12. You know, I knew <laughs> we, we lost something there. So I thought, okay, let's just wrap this up next year. We're going to have a series on the, the means of grace. But I want you to... I want to kind of bring this to a close by us recalling the great trajectory of what all of this has been about. Because in some ways, I view the, the life of the Spirit as happened to me as a young person, like Julie's dad. He was giving me an introduction to something I had not experienced, and it broadened my experience. In the same way, everybody's experience. You cannot be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit has been active in your life. This is not about that. You can't come to Christ. You can't be convicted without the Spirit. The Spirit is working all the time in unbelievers and believers alike. But there's also, there is other ways in which the Holy Spirit would, in, would in summon you and invite you to a broader experience because He wants you to be a part of this great thing that God's unfolding in the world. And I want to kind of close with this great global vision, which lies at the heart of the Spirit of God's work, triune God's actually, uh, work in the redemptive mission of the world. Because right in these pages, as we've seen in this series, we discover that the gospel burst out of the swaddling clothes of Judaism 
and breaks through these amazing barriers in the Greek world when these men and women from Cyprus and Cyrene, of whose names we do not know, preach the gospel to Greeks also, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus, Acts 11, 19. And suddenly the whole thing explodes. The church of Antioch is born. By the end of the second century, it's the largest church in the world. They become the sending agent of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, which, by the way, are not evangelistic campaigns, but church planting missions, establishing churches, Cyprus, City Antioch, Iconia, Lystra, Derby, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, this great backbone of church plants that form the book of Acts. By the fourth century, this persecuted minority, which had been fed to lions, brings down the entire Roman Empire, and it become, Christianity becomes the official faith of the entire empire with all of the blessings and challenges that that brings to the church. And the gospel continues to spread north into so-called barbarian territories and the far reaches of the empire itself, including a flourishing church in places like North Africa, which had dozens of bishops, gave wonderful gifts to church like St. Augustine. And then all the way to the Eastern Empire, now by this point in Constantinople, and brought us leaders as Basil the Great and Gregory of Nazianzus and the John Chrysostom, the great preacher of the gospel. And later, great Celtic saints like Aidan and Columba and St. Patrick brought the gospel to the western part of the empire. But the gospel, amazingly, we don't tell this story, it was meanwhile still moving across Persia along the Silk Route. And one of the remarkable things about church history is about the same time that the gospel is being preached in what today is England, it was being preached by Nestorian missionaries in the, Jesuit, in the, in the courts of, imperial courts of China. When Islam emerged in the 7th century, many of the Christian lands fell away from Christianity. A major setback in all of what we now call the Middle East. Even the so-called Holy Land fell to Islam. But the light of the gospel could not be put out. Boniface was bringing the gospel to the heart of what is now Germany. Cyril and Methodius were translating the Bible into the, the, the Slavic tongue. Vladimir was braving the mighty steps of Russia to bring the gospel. And even in the darkest days of the Western attempt to, to defeat Islam through the Crusades and that whole disaster of that time, you never forget that even then there were faithful men like Raymond Lull who brought the gospel in love and eventually became a martyr to the heart of the Islamic empire in North Africa. He was known as the apostle of love in an age of hate. We need more Raymond Lulls today, don't we? Eventually, the heart of the gospel and the authority of the scripture was recaptured in the European Reformation. And the gospel was further recovered in the 18th century with George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and the Western revivals which ushered in the First Great Awakening. And Francis Asbury, God bless him, comes to the new world and becomes, would become the greatest church planter in the history of our country, before or since. And his life, actually, you look at the span of his life, his life literally connects the first great awakening with the second great awakening. He birthed the holiness movement, the modern missionary movement, the first great awakening gave us the Moravians streaming forth from the state of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, Eventually, the Second Great Awakening brought the rise of the mission societies 
and men and women like William Carey and Adnan Judson and Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd and Amy Carmichael. Do you know these people? And Lottie Moon and Gladys Aylward and others too numerous to count who brought the gospel to the ends of the earth. Africa was referred to as the missionary graveyard because of disease, diseases that were encountered. The average missionary lived in those days, this missionary lifestyle, lifespan was two years in, the, in sub-Saharan Africa. And yet the real story is that Christianity took root in the soil of Africa. Praise God. Today, Africa is the fastest growing church in the world. And will, in your lifetime, certainly in this century, will be the large, most Christianized continent on the planet. China called the missionaries foreign devils. But the real story is the gospel took root in Chinese soil. And the gospel, of course, is proved over and over again. It's not Western or Eastern. It's the unfolding plan of God's redemption for the world. And China, of course, by far, has more Christians than any country in Asia today. In this way, the gospel spread all over the world, from the remote islands of the Pacific to the breathtaking mountains of Nepal. It's God's unfolding story to which he summons us. From the Jesuit witness in the Imperial Court of China to the relentless travels of David Livingston, the heart of Africa, this is God's unfolding story. From the work of Book of Bible translators in the tribal jungles of Papua New Guinea, to those working year after year in the sprawling Islamic cities of the world, cities like Istanbul and Cairo, Damascus and Jarkata, those great Muslim cities. This is God's unfolding story. From new church plants among immigrant populations in North America, which are exploding, to the fiery preaching on the streets of Rio and Sapalo in Latin America, this is God's great story. From the evangelists facing persecution in the heat of India's Ganges Plain to the bitter cold winds blowing across gospel workers in the hearts of Mongolia. You see, this is God's story. From the mass evangelistic campaigns that we celebrate, like Billy Graham, that bring thousands together to hear the gospel, to some quiet moment that no one knows about when a Russian girl gets on her knees in some concrete apartment complex in Moscow or some small town in that great land and asks Jesus into her heart. It's God's story. From the founding of Asbury Seminary in 1923, went to the bold vision to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world, to seedbed sowing for a great awakening. Only eternity will tell the full story. We only know a few chapters of this story, but we do know that God, in his amazing grace, invites you to be a part of this great story. Amen? Amen. That's what this whole series has been about, is empowering us and purifying us to be a part of this great story, to broaden your ministry out and receive all that he has for you. Because all of us are being moved towards, and indeed being summoned by Christ himself, to that great final day when the strong man will be finally disarmed for good. The lepers will be cleansed. All wayward sons will have come home. The great debt will be wiped out 
My, my, my debt, your debt, all great debts wiped out. Hallelujah. The door of the Father's house flung open wide. The lost sheep are all found. The poor and the beggars are seated at the great banquet. The disenfranchised workers have had their wages paid in fall. The lost coin has been found. The church, the bride of Christ, has made spotless because the acceptable year of the Lord has come. This is the goal to which this journey calls us and compels us, and I want you to be a part of it. Don't you? Amen. We're going to have our closing uh, hymn, and I want to just make an invitation. Uh, we're going to have our hymn and benediction so that everyone that needs to leave, I know the, the trustees have meetings, we all have meetings and all, but I'm going to stay back. And we have a couple of our faculty going to stay back. And I want to give an invitation uh, after the benediction for anyone in this room that would like to have another opportunity to receive a prayer for the Holy Spirit in your life. It may be for you a, an infilling of the Holy Spirit. It may be a refilling because we leak horribly bad. And some of you need to be filled again. I know I do. You may need just to say, Lord, help me to get out of my narrow ideas and, uh, of how what God's calling me, and help me get into this great vision. There may be different reasons that you need to come, but it's a spirit, a desire for the spirit of God to flood you and fill you in a fresh way. And so we'll, I'll stay as long as necessary for anyone who wants to come forward. You can just sit on the first pew or kneel down after the, uh, the, the, during the postlude, and we'll have those prayer time for you. Thanks be to God. Amen.